righteous in this act, nor had uh, they been derelict in their responsibilities. It also recognizes that as the king, he is responsible for all the people. Thus, if the king is judged, the people will be judged as well. And we find that happen actually in the, um, in the kingdom chronicles as well. He likewise does not deny that he would not have done something. Instead, he argues his innocence by way of being misled. It was Abraham and Sarah who had told him that they were siblings after all. As such, how can he be blamed for being misled? Indeed, he argues that he does have integrity, as per that he would not have taken her otherwise, as well as his innocence in this particular manner. God's response is recognition of Abimelech's statement. It is true that Abimelech does have integrity. However, God in his power is the one who kept Abimelech from committing adultery. How this has happened, we are not yet sure. As it is, we also notice that the sin would be against Abraham and Sarah, or not only against Abraham and Sarah, but more particularly, the sin would be against God. A reminder that when sin occurs, it is not only against other people, but always against God as well. In this, we find God commanding Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham. If Abimelech is truly innocent, then he will do as God says. It should be of note that this is the first time in the scriptures the term prophet is used as well, which should not surprise us as Abraham was made privy to the knowledge of God in chapter 18. Like there, Abraham will be an intercessor for Abimelech through prayer as he was for Sodom and Gomorrah. If Abimelech wishes to be spared of death and further prove his innocence, then he will obey God's commandments to return Sarah and then to also have Abraham pray over him. All right. So far, so good. So now we'll go to verses 8 through um, 13. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? Have you done to me things that ought not, you have done to me things that ought not to have been done? And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. All right. Verse 8 offers a change of scene. In the night, Abimelech dreamed. Now early in the morning, he gathers his servants to inform him of the situation. They are all afraid of what they hear. In these, we find Abimelech acting as one would expect, with speed and fear over the word of the Lord spoken to him. And we also find something about the people in his kingdom. They also fear. They also see this as a threat or as, as a potential bad thing to happen to them. At this point, Abraham is brought before Abimelech, and in this, Abimelech asks Abraham what all this is about. Indeed, the questions at hand are rhetorical. Abimelech knows what Abraham has done, and the lament over the potential sin he could have committed. We notice his response is very different than Pharaoh. Pharaoh was convinced about himself and concerned about himself, whereas Abimelech is worried not only about himself, but also about his people, his kingdom. Likewise, he recognizes this potential adultery as a great sin, thereby showing that he sees it as an unrighteous act, something which should not be done. 
So Abimelech asks, what was the purpose of this deceit? Why would Abraham cause this kind of grief to occur to Abimelech and to his kingdom? We notice that in Abimelech's case, he allows Abraham to speak for himself. He allows Abraham to defend his actions rather than just casting him aside the way that Pharaoh did. That said, Abraham tells why um, it is that he had done what he did. He had feared that there was no fear of the Lord in this place. As we know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Likewise, fear of the Lord will also lead to righteousness. In this case, Abraham, perhaps unwisely, made a judgment about the people that they would not be righteous, and in doing so made the assumption that they would kill Abraham in order to take Sarah away from him. We then learn about Abraham, that Abraham actually spoke a half-truth. Um, Sarah is, in fact, Abraham's half-sister through their father. Um, later on, such a relationship would be unlawful once the law was established. Thus, as one commentator puts it, it cuts both ways. In one sense, it justifies Abraham in his half-truth, but in another way, it condemns him as well, his entire relationship. This leads directly to Abraham's further condemnation on himself, for there are two options. The first is that Abraham is lying here in saying that he asked Sarah to say this everywhere that they go um, since leaving his father's house, thereby lying only to Abimelech, or he is being honest in this case, and he has lied to many others concerning his relationship with Sarah. In either case, we find Abraham being less than truthful. And as such, we find his saintly nature isn't so saintly after all. Now we come to the final few verses. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So upon hearing all that Abraham has said, Abimelech gives Abraham sheep, oxen, and servants. Now this is a similar response uh, to Abraham by Pharaoh. There are differences, however, between the stories. In Pharaoh's case, he gave Abraham the gifts as would be the normal response once a betrothal had taken place. Thus, before the plagues hit this house. Here, Abimelech gives Abraham these gifts at the same time as returning Sarah to him, likely as a sign of no fault. Likewise, when Pharaoh and Abraham had finished, Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt. Abimelech, however, is most gracious to offer Abraham land that he sees fit. In this, we find again Abimelech being more than accommodating and kind to Abraham, despite the slight against him. This is further seen in his response to Sarah. He gives to Abraham a thousand pieces of silver. Now, this is a massive sum in ancient times. Uh, if the pieces of silver is equivalent to a shekel, especially, then we see how large the sum is when we consider that a laborer in ancient Babylon would receive half a shekel for a month's wage. Um, the purpose of the added gift of silver is to show that nothing happened physically between Abimelech and Sarah. She is innocent of any kind of sin, as is Abimelech. Both are without sin in regard to adultery, and as such, the rest of the world will know this by, um, by seeing that this is the case. We do notice the minor slight against Abraham, however, by Abimelech in saying, I have given your brother 
Um, while Abimelech has been kind to Abraham and Sarah, in the end, he still does not appreciate being lied to in the way that he had been lied to. Verses 17 through 18 close out the story by answering a number of questions. The first is, why didn't Abimelech seek out Sarah? The answer is that he was sick. Uh, what kind of illness which Abimelech received is unknown. The fact that he needed healing, however, reflects that this was the case. It also says something about the duration of the event. While we read it, it almost appears as though a day or two has passed. In all actuality, it may have been many months have passed since Sarah had been taken from Abraham. Indeed, that the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech shows us to be the case. Now, however, Abraham has prayed over Abimelech. He, along with his household, are healed from what God had originally caused. As such, God truly was the one who stopped Abimelech from sinning by giving him this illness, and Abimelech's people were in jeopardy as it wasn't only him, but his people who felt the judgment from God. All right. So the main point of these verses are to show another event which unfolds in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Despite God showing his omnipotence and his omniscience throughout Abraham's calling, Abraham, he still fears. In that fear, he willingly lies to protect himself at the expense of Sarah. God, however, intervenes on everyone's behalf and keeps sin from occurring. Um, Thus, setting up the stage for the next phase in Abraham and Sarah's life, the birth of Isaac. In this, there are two more things. The first is that Abimelech is not Isaac's father, as per the fact that he never did touch Sarah. The second is that God is able to close and open wombs, just as he had done with the women of Gerar, thus causing us to wonder, can or will he open up Sarah's womb also? All right. So a few uh, applications from this. It is interesting to consider what would potentially happen to Abimelech. We notice how the first thing God essentially says to him is, you're a dead man. Not only do we find out this information, but we also find out the reason why God would make such a judgment on his life. Uh, The reason, because the course he's heading on will cause him to commit adultery. Throughout the scriptures, we're reminded of the important fact that sin leads directly to death. Death occurs because of sin. Romans 3 speaks it plainly, that the wages of sin is death. It is only after Adam and Eve sin that death seems to be part of the equation. Likewise, everyone who has been presented in Genesis thus far, uh, minus Enoch, has been told to have died. If we remember the statements at the end of each of the genealogies, he had so-and-so, he lived for so long, and then he died. Death is a common theme throughout Genesis. It is a common theme because it keeps reminding us that humanity deserves the judgment which comes against them because of their sin. And that judgment is that they should die and that they should return to the earth from which they came. Now, it is interesting to consider Abimelech again. If Abimelech had sinned against Abraham and Sarah, if the great sin, as he calls it, actually had occurred, would he be guilty of it? Would he be guilty of the sin if he had been lied to the way that Abraham and Sarah had lied to him? Can God find fault with him for this? The answer seems to be positive. Even if we are duped into sin, it doesn't negate the act. Even if we are unaware that we had sinned, or if we are ignorant of the fact that it was a sin which was committed, it doesn't negate the fact that we are worthy of judgment. When we consider Eve, she was duped into believing that she was not sinning. 
Yet it doesn't negate what she did was in fact sinful. Indeed, the law itself deals with these kinds of situations in both Leviticus 4 and 5. We find examples of individuals who sin in ignorance. Indeed, consider one such passage from chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Here, we find an example of someone who sins unintentionally, and how they are to resolve their guilt of that sin. Even if they are unintentional or have ignorance concerning their sin, it doesn't mean that they had not sinned. Thus, they are still to be held accountable even in their unintentionality, even in their ignorance. Why? Because sin is still sin, and as such, it deserves judgment. So it is, even if we should sin because of someone else, or because we are tricked, or unintentionally, it is still sin. Abimelech is the perfect example of this. God still would hold him accountable for his actions if he were to go through with this sinful experience. And if that were to be the case, then he would deserve the judgment. That is the point of all of this. Oftentimes we think that those who do not know any better are unworthy of judgment. The problem is sin, again, is still sin. The problem is if we commit sin, regardless if we are aware of it or not, it doesn't change the fact that we are still made guilty. If we should be negligent or lied to or tricked, what have you, once we sin, it is still counted against us. This shows the seriousness of sin itself. Our holy God considers it just as serious to sin unintentionally as intentionally. Both have guilt associated with them and both bring condemnation. This is also why it is so imperative for us to study the scriptures and to understand what sin is. Without knowing what sin is, it makes it that much harder for us to combat it and that much harder for us to root it out in our lives and in our families and even in our communities. It is not good enough to be caught unawares when the scriptures are there to make us aware of sin. So, be careful of sin. A little leaven infects the whole dough. Be wary of sin. Sin is not good. It is destructive and it deserves destruction. Be warned to keep watch, to check yourselves, examine yourselves according to the scriptures so that we can make sure we're not sinning unintentionally, not realizing we're sinning against God. And that is the final realization about all of this. God does not warn that the sin will be against Abraham or Sarah. No, the sin is ultimately against God himself. Thus, it reminds us that all sin, regardless of who we sin against, is not only against the individual, but also against God. Every sin committed is an offense to God. It goes against God and who he has called us to be bearing his image. Again, be warned. Be careful. Sin creeps in in many ways. It might be through a lie. It might be a deception. Don't be deceived. It might be through an unintended bad teaching. Learn good teaching through the scriptures. We have no excuses to learn for ourselves what sin is, nor do we have any excuses to not seek to mortify, as uh, the Puritans used to say, our sin. 
to seek to purge the areas in our lives which belong to sin. No, God deserves all of us for his glory. Seek then to get rid of these sins and give yourselves unto righteousness. All right, so if that's the negative aspect of this, there's also a positive, I promise. Um, And while the previous point is one which focuses on a bit more of that negative aspect, we do see this positive about God being the God of life. While it is true that God is fully capable and able to take away the life of Abimelech, he is also fully able to give Abimelech life as well. He does this through intervention. He keeps Abimelech from sinning, and in doing this, his life is spared. Indeed, even when we consider the above verses from Leviticus and how unintentional sin deserves judgment, we notice that there is still redemption for unintentional sin. Through sacrifice, the person who committed the sin can have that guilt taken away. This is the same with those who commit a sin unintentionally and then realize their guilt. Under this circumstance, they too are able to offer sacrifice in order for guilt to be taken away. Thus, God isn't just going to condemn. He allows us to be made aware of our sins and to find redemption from them. This is keenly seen with Abimelech. God not only warns him of impending death, He also informs him how he can keep himself from committing the sinful act and how he can turn away from death. It requires, however, two things on the part of Abimelech. The first thing is actually faith. One might wonder, how does faith play a part in Abimelech's part of the story? Well, it plays a part in the fact that it requires Abimelech's faith to believe that God exists and to believe that the sin is against God that the sin deserves judgment, and that by being obedient, he will maintain his integrity and his innocence. That all requires faith. So that is the first aspect of Abimelech. Faith is necessary in order for redemption to occur to begin with. The second aspect is obedience. They go hand in hand with one another. If Abimelech does not do as God commands, then there is still death waiting for him in his disobedience. In this way, Abimelech joins Noah and Abraham in particular as as an individual who has faith in God and all that God says, while at the same time does all that God commands. The twin pillars of the Christian faith rest in this very real and mutual understanding. Faith leads to obedience. Because we have faith, we will seek obedience to what God has called us to do. Thus, faith, again, it leads to faithfulness. Likewise, we ourselves... Um, are, are, we ourselves are, Abimelech in another way. We notice it is not only in returning Sarah, nor in offering Abraham and Sarah many gifts. No, it goes further than this. For in the end, Abimelech still needs intercession. He is still in need of a prophet who can pray for him. And it is in this prayer that not only is the judgment abated in regards to death, but also in his illness. In that prayer, the judgment against Abimelech and his people are taken away. Whatever illness was there is no more for him. And God, who had previously closed the wombs of the women in the city, now opens them back up. Thus, it brings it all back around to recognize that God is not only the God of judgment and death, but also the God of life, saving the life of Abimelech, as well as allowing new life to come into the world. Thus, the intercession of Abraham is a necessary component to the entire effect. How does this relate to us? Well, consider it. We, too, have an intercessor 
who heals us of our wounds. We too have an intercessor who takes away our guilt and who grants us life instead of death. Our intercessor is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king, and he is the only Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this also leads to one other aspect about all of this, and that is Abraham. As it is, Abraham, he sinned in this. He blatantly lied in order to cover up his own rear, so to speak. What about him? Isn't he supposed to be the righteous one? Isn't he supposed to be holy and good and blameless? Isn't he supposed to be above reproach? All of these things are technically yes. Indeed, we can have no real excuse for Abraham's actions. He made a mistake. He failed. He is guilty as Abimelech's questions clearly show. Now, many of us would probably be concerned about this because, well, it's Abraham. You know, the father of our faith, so to speak. Because of all the questions asked above, we should be a little worried, shouldn't we? But then that would be missing the point that Abraham's entire story teaches us. Because as you remember, it isn't that Abraham is declared righteous by his deeds. He is declared righteous by his faith. Faith is what makes us right with God from the beginning. Indeed, without having faith in God to begin with, Abimelech would again never have repented from his course of action, and Abraham would never have made that first step toward Canaan. So we need to remember, when it comes to ourselves and to each other, the Christian faith recognizes that it is not what we do which declares us righteous, but our faith, and this faith leads to faithfulness in what God has commanded. In the process, we are going to be like Abraham. We are going to fail, and we're going to fail miserably. But like Abraham and Abimelech, we can learn from our mistakes by God's grace and trust in him to continue to guide us into his righteousness despite our failings. Thus, in Abimelech, we find an individual who would have sinned had intervention not occurred by God's own hand. In Abraham, we find an individual who should know better, who should trust in God, but who doesn't, and then he does sin. In both, we find ourselves, individuals who sin unawares, um, and individuals who sin very aware of our failures. In the end, it is faith which leads us in the right directions in both respects, and faith which brings redemption. Thus, faith is what brings life. Faith brings life because God is not only the God of judgment and death, but also the God of redemption and life. In him, we find great fear, but we also find great love and deliverance. In him, then, we can place all of our trust and hope, knowing that it is through him we find this great salvation from death. Indeed, we find this great gift of life everlasting. Um, And so now it comes down to the gospel. And admittedly, there's not much in regards to origins here except yeah, okay, no, we'll, we won't even go there yet. Um, the point is origins. You know, in the end, we have to always go with the gospel and talk about the fact that we are created in the image of God. We have to start here. If we don't start here, then we have serious repercussions for the whole story. It doesn't tell the whole story. Um, and recently, I've come to the conclusion, um, just this past week, through various conversations, that it is very necessary for us to always hear this gospel because this is how we have to proclaim it. Um, If we don't do that, then we come into serious issues when it comes to um, those outside the church, as well as maybe things that we would want to do outreach-wise. So, 
origins. We're all creating the image of God. We all have the image of God implanted on us. Every single living person, if you are a human, you are created in the image of God most high. You're not, as the naturalist would say, just a speck in the universe. You're not like an individual who is just simply some part of the cosmic machine that has no purpose or identity other than to be part of that machine. No, you are created in the image of God most high. You have worth. You have sanctity to life. You have dignity to life. But then that leads to the problem in much of what we see in today's chapter, sin. Abraham, he first sinned by blatantly lying in order to save himself, thinking that, okay, I can save myself if I lie. What would have been a better response from Abraham there? To trust in God. To trust in God. But as it is, he doesn't trust in God. In the end, despite him doing so many miraculous things in Abraham's life, um, Abraham decides to turn away from that and to say, okay, I'm just going to trust my own instincts here and go along with what I think is the best course. That doesn't work out, did it? (laughs) And you notice the destructiveness of sin. It not only affected Abraham and Sarah's life, it also affected the life of now this king and his entire people group because of one sin. One sin. And that reminds us of the destruction of it. It reminds us of the devastation of the fall, that because of just simply one sin, entire communities can become disheveled. Disheveled, disheveled, however you say that word. And so the fall, it reminds us that when we do sin, we we have a break, a disconnect with God. And because of that disconnect, we deserve judgment. We have a disconnect with ourselves because, let's be real, sin causes psychological problems in our lives. Physical problems in our lives. Spiritual problems in our lives. We also have a problem when we sin against other people. Guess what? That relationship is now um, in a state of trouble unless it's remedied. And then also with the world around us when we destroy it for greed. Sin covers everything. It's really disturbing. And it's because of that that sin deserves judgment. If Abimelech had continued on in the course that he was going on, if God had not brought intervention, he deserved judgment for that sin. Because sin deserves judgment. Now the question is, how do we find redemption? Is it even possible for, let's say, God to bring about redemption from the effects that happened today in today's story? Can redemption even come from our faults? Or are we just stuck, always in that abyss? The answer is that we're not stuck. The answer is that, yes, we may be in the abyss. We may be covered in it, in that um, slough of despond, as Pilgrim's Progress says. But redemption can still come. Because Christ has reached down into that abyss and has pulled us out. So that even though we're in there, helpless, he reaches down in there and takes us out. And that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in time, space, history, and flesh, we have redemption from our sins. And that all the unrighteousness that is within us is now gone. And do you know what you have in response? The righteousness of Jesus himself. 
And that's what we find in Romans 9. How the love of God is so deep and so wide and that nothing on earth can ever take us out of the love of God. Why? Because at the very end of Romans 9 it says, because of Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of what Jesus has done. And so that's why we can look at this and find redemption. And the thing about the redemptive aspect of it is that it's a full redemption. It's a redemption of your heart, mind, soul, and your strength. It's a redemption of our communities. It's a redemption of who you are as individuals. So that, guess what? Connie can sing to the glory of God and play her music. That Mike can have a business for the glory of God. That those of you who are retired can be retired for the glory of God. That parents can be parents for the glory of God. The redemption of Jesus isn't just about saving your soul. It's about all of creation. Thus, even here, there is redemption. And we're going to see how God even redeems this story and how ultimately, who's going to come next in the story? Does anyone know? Has anyone read ahead? Isaac. (laughs) Isaac. So God is able to even redeem this aspect of the story so that Isaac can be born to Abraham and Sarah. How awesome. And ultimately where it's all leading us is to glory. Not our glory. We inherit the glory of Jesus, praise God, because I could not attain enough glory. But the glory of Jesus is everlasting. The life that he grants is everlasting. And so in this, the encouragement from this is to remind us faith first. We need to have faith that God exists. We need to have faith in Jesus Christ. We have to have faith that ultimately judgment will come to those who do not repent of their sins and have faith in Jesus. But that also reminds us, too, that we have to be a repentive people. We have to be people who do turn from sin. It's not enough for us to simply say, okay, I've heard God and I've seen God. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. If Abimelech had done that, he deserves judgment. Scary thought process. But in the end... We know that those who do have faith will turn toward God in repentance. And that's our call. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done through your son Jesus Christ and through the redemption that he gives to us in all aspects and all areas of creation. And Lord, as we continue to live our lives for your glory, we ask that you alone would be praised. And we ask that you alone would continue to redeem us and that we wouldn't rely on our own strength but trust in your ability to save us that we wouldn't be like abraham and think that it's all up to us to figure it out but that we can just have faith that you are for us and likewise lord give us hearts like abimelech so that when we see you and when we experience you that we would turn toward you as well and that we wouldn't run or flee but that we would seek to look for righteousness. This world is in need of righteousness, Lord. It's in need of a people who follow after you. Let us be that people. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.